viewers of WMYU, this is In-Depth on Sports. I am your host, Ian Colalucci, and folks, welcome in everybody Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022, 2-22-22. Boy, you're, you're not going to hear that for another 100 years, uh, but that's besides the point. Welcome to the show and everybody today. Great show on tap today. We have Miss Cameron Myler joining us in the second half of our program, a four-time Olympian flag bearer in the Winter Olympics in 1994. A tremendous resume of accolades, uh, um, accomplishments, all sorts of things. We're going to be talking with her about the Olympics in the last couple of weeks or so. She is going to be joining us for that, going to be talking about her experiences, obviously, there, and where she foresees the Olympic movement going forward over the next 10 or 15 years or so. Definitely going to be getting into that with her today as well. Definitely going to be talking NBA All-Star Game. Just had the 75th anniversary celebration at the NBA All-Star Game. Definitely going to be interesting to talk about, you know, who made the cut. You know, we saw... Um, uh, we saw guys like Michael Jordan, Allen Iverson, Ray Allen all come in, come back and, uh, you know, give their way to the crowd for the 75th anniversary team. A lot of young guys, or, excuse me, older guys as well. Guys like Bob Pettit from back in the 1950s. It was nice to see them back uh, in person at a pretty nice celebration in Cleveland, Ohio. The game itself you know, I think was sort of second to the 75th anniversary celebration. I think a lot of people complaining, as we mentioned on previous shows, you know, the NBA All-Star game, not necessarily what we've been seeing in terms of competitiveness, talent. It really just comes to, you know, who can shoot the ball well. And of course, who can shoot the ball better than anybody? Mr. Steph Curry winning the All-Star game MVP with 50 points. Absolutely dynamite from behind the arc. And LeBron hitting the game-winning shot. Very fitting to have him sort of finish the game out in his former hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. Great game. Uh, a, fan, a pretty solid game, but I think the 75th anniversary selection and the team itself is definitely going to be a little bit controversial, and definitely we're going to get into that a little bit as well. Also, NHL as well. The New York Rangers finally... We're seeing a resurgence of blue shirt mania here in New York, I would say, because in terms of New York sports, let's face it, over the last... Five or six months or so, what has there been to be excited about? Let's be honest. You have, once the Yankee and Mets seasons wrapped up in early October, we had the Giants and the Jets perform as they usually do a floundering, a, a floundering or floundering organizations that just have absolutely no place in the NFL at the, at, at, during this season. Just disastrous performances all around from the Giants offensive side to the Jets defensive meltdowns to a just horrifying season of New York football. And then on the basketball side, you have a disappointing Nets year. You know, we were optimistic going into the beginning of the season that the Nets would be favored in the East and it hasn't really turned out that way. They've had an okay season. And of course, the big trade, the James Harden trade, uh, we're going to break that down a little bit today. That did happen last week. We are going to discuss that a little bit just in terms of breaking it down for both sides. Who won the trade? I think it's pretty clear Brooklyn won the trade. But in terms of a win now perspective, the Nets are the eighth seed right now in the NBA's Eastern Conference. And with the roster that they had going into the season, it's, it's almost shocking to me. That, that this is where we are right now. I mean, we have on one side of a coin, you have the Nets who are performing way under any expectations that would have been seen. They're two, they've won two out of their last 10 games. And on the other side, you have the New York Knicks who have absolutely 
any expectations that there were for them this season, which were, I would say, to make the playoffs as a low middle seed and hopefully win a first round playoff series that they failed to do last year against the Hawks. And, you know, people got their expectations up so high for this team. And when I when I when going into the year, we expected we expected Julius Randle to be what he was last year, which was a dominant enforcer in the paint and being able to occasionally shoot the ball from outside at a good clip of around 35 percent, maybe even 40 percent if we were lucky. But that is not even close to what we're seeing. Randall, in many instances, has shown that he is incapable of any sort of leadership leadership potential or ability to control the floor, which he needs to do for this Nick team, where the point guard game has been inconsistent. Uh, Kemba Walker, I mean, he's not what he used to be. Um, I would have liked to have seen him come into New York and be what he was in Charlotte, but let's be honest, were we really going to see that? I don't know. I would have liked to have seen it, but it just doesn't seem like he can find that groove from behind the arc and being a consistent playmaking threat on the offensive side of the ball. We really haven't seen that yet this year from Kemba Walker. And now with Randall sort of falling into a somewhat of a slump, he's looked a little better of late, but during the midpoint, last 15 games or so, I mean, just inconsistent. There was, there was one game he had a couple weeks ago where he had four points in a four points against a team. Uh, it was the New Orleans Pelicans. He had four points against the Pelicans, who are a below a below average team. I mean, they're they're twelfth in the West. Uh, this is a team that you should be scoring twenty five against, and you're telling me you can only put up four points for your team and look absolutely terrible for behind the arc. I mean, he pulls up for shots when I really think he should be going in for layups. And you know that sounds really baseline and basic when you put it like that, but. That's kind of what it is. It's not rocket science. Just you have the size to take on these smaller defenders. You should use that to your advantage. That's why he was so successful a couple of years ago. Sure, he was good behind the arc, but he developed confidence because he was being he was successful in the paint. When you develop confidence in the paint, then you can start to break out outside. But Randall has sort of flip-flopped that, thinking that he can develop that momentum from the perimeter. He hasn't been able to do that, and that's one of the reasons why the Knicks have been so inconsistent this year. And as a, as a New York sports fan, let's face it, people listening to the show, they're New York fans. I mean, you have you – have, a, f- a terrible situation in New York football, a disappointing situation in New York basketball. And the only thing that's really salvaging things right now, this is what we were going to talk about here, is the NHL and the fact that the New York Rangers, for the first time in since, I would say, since the early part of the 2010s, are showing that they are going to be a legitimate force in the playoffs this year. Look, they are now, at this point, we're 50 games into the season, and the Rangers are 32-13-5. and five. I believe that's their high, that's their best record since their 2014 Stanley Cup campaign where they lost to the Kings in five games. An absolute disappointment. But that, if you're a Ranger fan, what is not to be excited about with this team? Gerard Gallant has proven, after coming out of a pretty solid uh, situation in Vegas, that he could come into a team that needed some improvements, had the young talent that they needed, but could develop a core of young stars that can absolutely run over any other team when everybody's clicking. Now, granted, that that does take, you know, there's a couple things that need to be considered. When all of those factors come in, you need to have a consistent offense. You need to have solid power, pl- uh, solid play when you're on the uh, when you have the advantage of the power play and 
One of the big reasons why they've been able to be so consistent is because of Chris Kreider at 30 years old, an absolute breakout season for him. And he has been a leader for this New York Rangers team for the last four or five years or so. Granted, he's been a leader, I would say, for most of his career. But now I think people are starting to recognize how important he is to the team. He's got 33 goals at one point leading the NHL in goals. That is, to me... Absolutely shocking considering the amount of goal scoring talent in the league right now. Connor McDavid's, um, Alex Ovechkin. I mean, these are the guys who we've been watching for the last five, 10, 15 years in Ovechkin's case who absolutely dominate the circuit year after year. Ovechkin's gonna, I would say, he has a very good shot to position himself as the number two all time goal scorer. I don't know if he's gonna catch Gretzky, but. I mean, he, he is an all-time great, one of the greatest offensive threats of his generation. And, you know, in a league where he's still around, still performing at a relatively high level, you'd think he would be the one who has the advantage. And he's had a good year. But Chris Kreider, Chris Kreider, a New York Ranger, a role player at one point, has come into his own and has found himself as, I would say, the leader of the Rangers organization. He's now tied for second in goals. But 47 points, uh, uh, 14 assists this year. Absolutely phenomenal performance from him this year, and I think Rangers fans needed someone to rally around this year, and I think Chris Kreider has really pulled into his own as that. And, you know, Panarin is obviously, you know, he's your star. He's your star this year. I mean, he's got 55 points, 41 assists for Artemi Panarin. And when he came in out of Columbus, we expected him to do this. And, you know, last year the Rangers had somewhat of a disappointing season. Um, uh, It wasn't really... Not really expecting them to do a ton, but we would have liked to have seen a little bit more in terms of, you know, just... But intangibles, wins and losses. I mean, after early exits in the playoffs in the COVID year to Carolina, um, disappointing playoff runs in the uh, non-playoff runs, excuse me, in 2018, 2017, 2019. Now you have a team that is showing shades of the early part of the decade. I mean, no, it's not the team with Ryan McDonough, Ryan Callahan, or even, uh, you know, the Henrik Lundqvist era. But Igor Shesterkin has come into his own as a fantastic goaltender for the New York Rangers organization. And I, again, similar to Kreider, Fans rally around these home, this homegrown talent that has been developed for years and now is starting to find its groove to at a point where they can really make a statement in the Eastern Conference. I mean, granted, these are not – I still think Tampa is um, one of the biggest threats in the league still. I mean, as a back-to-back Stanley Cup winner, how can you not be? I mean, they're th- they have a very similar record right now. They're still going to be uh, just as – uh, just as important in the playoff race. I mean, you have still Nikita Kucherov, uh, Braden Point, all of whom play tr- a huge role for the for the Lightning's uh, offensive prowess, and they've been doing that throughout this year. But I would say, if you're the Rangers, you got to look at the standings right now, and you got to think look think about who's ahead of them right now. Sure, you have your perennial contenders like Tampa, Pittsburgh, Toronto in that same area, even Boston, but. Florida and Carolina have the best records in the Eastern Conference. Did anyone think that going into the season? Probably not. They're good teams, granted. I thought they would have made the playoffs, but I did not see them carrying away with 75 points, 50 games in the season. I mean, uh, look, if you look, just break down their roster. I mean, you've got, you know, veterans like former Ranger Derek Stepan and, of course, you know, perennial uh, uh, perennial threats like Sebastian Ajo. And uh, think about, it's interesting. If you look at the Hurricanes, you've got Derek Stepan, Jesper Faust, Rangers veterans, Tony D'Angelo too. They're all former Rangers and they've come into, um, they've come into Carolina and uh, it's been a, a great mesh of talent. I think what really works for the Hurricanes is that they have 
such a balanced attack. They're able to take advantage of their opportunities so easily. Uh, if you look at their power play numbers, some of the best in the league, they they man they take the pieces that they have and they're very successful with them, even after starting out pretty shaky. I mean, if you look at them, you know, at the beginning of the season, Carolina, okay start. They've actually been a little bit shaky of late. Um, uh, and you know, when you excuse me. Starting off the season, 9-0 start to the year for Carolina. They've been a little shaky of late. And they're still carrying their own. An overtime victory against Philadelphia uh, on February 21st. Uh, victory against uh, Pittsburgh the day before that. They look consistent. And they're going to be a threat in the postseason. But if you're the Rangers, I think there's an opportunity there. I mean, if Florida and Carolina have the best records in the league, you're probably going to have to face them in the playoffs, but their teams, they're beatable. I think the perennial threats like Tampa and Pittsburgh are much more threatening than a team like Florida and Carolina who have yet to make deep playoff runs over the last five, ten years or so. Carolina more so, but Florida certainly not. I mean, they've, as a, as a franchise, they're almost looked not in the same as like a joke, but as an organization that isn't really run all that well, I mean, Attendance-wise, they're pretty mediocre, despite the fact that they have 75 points. Um, I mean, it, it's similar to a situation in that you know warm market like Arizona, where they file for bankruptcy, for God's sake. They're not really on the same level in terms of talent and capacity, but this is not... This is not a team that really speaks to their fans well, despite how well they're doing on the ice, and it's disappointing to see that, but granted, they're the best team in the East, but I think there's room. I think there's room for a team like New York, a team uh, for a team like New York to have a deep run in the playoffs this year. And I'm going to be excited because any and all possibility in New York sports, that's what you want to see. You want to see those deep playoff runs. Think about think about this. Besides the Yankees, the Rangers and the Giants in the early part of the 2010s were the only title birds that we had since, you know, the Yankees in 09. You had the Giants 2012, the Rangers 2014, uh, excuse me, 2012. Um, that was, that's it. That's it. I mean, the last nine years or so have been sort of a ghost town of in terms of playoff uh, in, play, in terms of playoff accomplishments, the Giants back in 2016, I mean, that was their their playoff run again where they lost to the Packers in the wild card game. But then you had Super Bowl 46 with the Giants winning in 2011, the 2012 Super Bowl. And then 2007, 2008, beating the undefeated Patriots. That That's pretty much it in terms of football. Hockey, you've got that 2012 Rangers uh, playoff, the Stanley Cup berth, losing to the Kings. The Yankees in 2009 beating the Phillies. And the Knicks and Nets haven't even seen the light of day in the postseason since the early part of the 2010s. Even, even for the Nets, I mean, their, their, last, uh, their last NBA Finals appearance was in 2003. What, what is the state of New York sports right now? It's concern, it's angst, it's Anything you could possibly imagine to hook yourself onto, the Rangers are really the only game in town that you can. I think, you know, I think maybe you could look at the Islanders. I think are um, are definitely someone to think about. But think about it. They have not made the Stanley Cup. They've had some good playoff runs. Similar to the Yankees, they've made it to the Eastern Conference Finals or the ALCS, but they haven't managed to shut the door on any team that they've played against. They lost against Pittsburgh. They lost against Tampa. And for the, if you're the Yankees, you lose against Houston. You lose against Tampa. You lose against Boston. And you're you're in that sort of rut where you have postseason success, but you can't take that next step to the finals or the Stanley Cup or the World Series or for anything for that matter. There is this gap in New York sports that fans are growing impatient with, I would say. And personally, on my own, I'm, I'm a little impatient with it as well. And 
it, it speaks to how these organizations are run. I think the Giants have lost their way a little bit in terms of the prestige that their organization brings. Look at a guy like Wellington Mara. The Maras have run this team since since its birth. And and, and what, what are you left with now? I mean, people people talk about the curse of the boat picture with the Giants. If you don't know what that is, it is a, a picture of Odell Beckham and a bunch of his Giants brethren sitting on a boat during a disastrous giant season looking as if they don't have a care in the world for how their season goes and since that picture the giants have yet to make the playoffs and no it's obviously i don't think it's a curse but it does sort of speak to how the organizations run their players don't seem to have that same drive grit and determination that the teams of the super bowl winning ways of the past had i mean you had if you look back at that Super Bowl 42 team with Strahan and Chris Snee and Jeremy Shockey and, you know, early Eli, I mean, that, those were guys you could really get behind. And I think New York really had an affinity for. And even on the 46 team with uh, with Mario Manningham, uh, Eli, sort of a later Eli, uh, you had Ahmad Bradshaw. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of some other guys, but either way, these were guys. These was these were offensive weapons that people got behind and cared about. And it was there were rematches with the Patriots, and they were successful in both ways because of their tremendous defense and Eli's clutch performances. And we haven't even seen anything close to that in New York since that. And it's a shameful. It's shameful to say that now. You know the NFL season's over, but I think if you're a Giant or a Jet fan or a Nick fan or a Net fan or a Devil fan or a Met fan. The list goes on and on and on. It's just disappointment. And what can we do to retool the organization? And it's almost as if the last 10 years, nothing has changed. And you look at the exceptions to the rule. You look at teams like the Yankees, the Islanders, even the Rangers, for that matter. Um, they have been successful of late. And, you know, they haven't been able to take that next step. But at least they're showing signs of life. And, you know, speaking speaking of disappointment, speaking of disappointment, I want to touch a little bit on the MLB today because, We've had some momentum. We had some momentum with the lockout yesterday. Uh, the owners and the Players Association met for what was seemed to be four hours, a long meeting that, you know, it seems like, okay, are we going to be making some progress today? And the tweets came out after the meeting, Jesse Rogers and uh, Jeff Besson uh, reporting that, okay, the players and the, uh, and the owners met, and did we have a lot of movement? Not really, but the whole key, the, the whole point that the, uh, the writers were trying to get across was that people were positive. People were positive in these meetings. They were saying that the range, the, um, excuse me, the, uh, the range of topics that were discussed that they weren't necessarily being steadfast to their opinions. They were, they were working towards an actual agreement this time. It wasn't as if, you know, there were non-starters. They were trying to make a movement towards somewhat of an agreement before any more spring training games get delayed. And, you know, now we're at the point, it's February 22nd. This is supposed to be, um, this is supposed to be the point. Pitchers and catchers have already reported and we have, you know, it's crunch time. This is, you know, we got games in. If we would supposedly have games in a few days, um, you know, we get to see some young talent out there on the in the on the field, and we're not seeing any of that because of this. You know, now we're on what eighty four to eighty five days now with this lockout, and you know, it seems like we're moving inch by inch by inch. But the whole point, I think, from the meetings this week, they're supposedly going to meet every single day this week. That's the whole. That's the whole theory here that they're going to meet every day. They're going to make these inch movements. But at the end of this, you know, one or two week stretch, they're going to have a deal in place before opening day can't get delayed because they the uh, both the players and the owners have mutually agreed that. There needs to be four weeks of spring training in order for a season to get started on time. And the deadline for that is in six 
days, people. Six days. It's got to be February 28th by that time. Next Monday. So by next week, uh, March 1st is our next show. We will know if MLB is, if the MLB season will be delayed this year. And I got to be honest with you, I think it's going to be delayed in some capacity. You know, I was op- I've been optimistic for weeks now. I'm thinking, okay, they're going to get a deal done by the regular season. They're going to get a deal done by the regular season. It hasn't seen that way. It doesn't really seem that way to me. I'm, I'm concerned. Uh, it's I want to be optimistic, but when you see, you know, any time fans get their hopes up, like, okay, they're meeting today, or okay, they met for a long time today, nothing substantial ever seems to happen. And if they're meeting every day this week, I think there's going to be some progress made. But I think if they really want to get a real deal done, I don't think we're going to see it done by February 28th. I think what's really going to happen is you're going to get it done, but you're going to have at least a few days in April where there is no baseball to be played. And I think, you know, we're going to see something like 95 where, you know, it started mid-April as opposed to, you know, March 31st. And when you have a season that starts on March 31st, everyone gets excited about it. You know, there's not really a ton going on. We're not in NBA playoff season. NHL playoffs haven't really gotten in full swing yet. It's MLB is center stage, and they need that in order to remain a fixture in the American culture and mindset. And if you have a delayed start to the season, yeah, it's a big impact. Even if it's just a week or two, you want to maintain that sort of relevance on March 31st. This is this is baseball's time. You had a good season last year. As the Astros Braves World Series was exciting. I cared about what happened in that World Series. You know, 2020, the Dodgers Rays series, I did not. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I did not really care enough about who won that series as opposed to previous years. 2019, Astros Nationals, great series. 23 million people watched Game 7. I cared about that series. 2021, not necessarily the same in viewership counts. I think we got about 16 million for the clincher for the Braves, but people cared about that series as opposed to that 2020 series, which was just a COVID, not a neutral site series where the Dodgers... You know, they got their first World Series in 32 years, but that's not really a World Series to me. It's a 60-game season with expanded playoffs. And and, and granted, let's talk expanded playoffs here because I think that's what's going to happen at the end of the day. And I got to be honest with you, I hate that. I despise that. I, I think it absolutely destroys the integrity of what makes baseball so great, which is the exclusivity that maintains in the postseason. You know, in the NHL, it's, you know, you have three... Um, Three teams make it from each uh, from each division, and you have a wild card from each division that maintains eight teams in each conference. NBA, pretty much the same, plus play-in games. If you count play-in games in the tournament for the NBA, you have almost 20 teams making the playoffs in the NBA. You have 16 teams make the playoffs in the uh, in the NHL. And in the NFL, you just had expanded playoffs. You had an extra wild card team. That adds up to 14 teams in the playoffs. Baseball is special. You have eight Team, at one point, at one point, you had eight teams in the playoffs just as recently as 15, 20 years ago. Now you have 10 with a wild card game, but I'm okay with that. 10 and 10 is fine. I, I mean, that, that's, that, it, it, it speaks to, you know, uh, that 10 teams in the playoffs. You have five teams in each, in each, uh, in each league. That's fine. Three division winners, a wild card game. That's perfect. That's a third of the league. That makes sense. But if you add expanded playoffs, you're going to have seedings and you're going to make it so that it turns into any of the other leagues. Baseball, the reason why people watch baseball playoff games is because their team accomplished something throughout the season. If you have a 500 team making the playoffs and suddenly they go on a run, they didn't deserve to make the playoffs in the first place. They just got hot at the right time. And if you see that in Major League Baseball, 
it may kill the sport to some capacity. Sure, it makes more money, but I think a lot of older fans, I think people who have stuck with the game for a long time, despite, you know, I think what might be inevitable here, I think fans may abandon the game even more. And that and that shocks me and that scares me a little bit. And I think, you know, it will still maintain its relevance, but it will not be the same as what it once was. And I mean, you know, I don't want to sound like some old fogey who wants, you know, one team in each league. I mean, that's a disaster waiting to happen. And even so with, you know, back in the 60s or the 60s and 70s where you had the uh, league championship introduction in 1969, sure, that's fine. But now you do need more teams in the playoffs. It has to be done. But once you get to numbers in, you know, when you get into half the league, that, that ruins it for me. It makes it seem like the regular season has nothing, means absolutely nothing. And because baseball has such a long regular season, it's 162 games, 162 games. If you tell the fans that these 162 games, your exclusive revenue stream for that the entire season, I mean, sure, TV, TV revenue is obviously the most important, but ticket revenue is almost as, if not just as important. And if you tell me that those 162 games don't matter as much, what do you think is going to happen? There's going to be less fans in the seats. There's going to be less revenue. F- uh, organizations will see reduced income, less free agent signings, less high quality talent. It will kill smaller teams like the Marlins or, um, you know, the Rays. The Rays have been successful. The Rays have been successful for the last 10 years or so. They made a World Series in 2020. Granted, it was a short season, but yeah, they did make a World Series. Fans don't come and watch the Rays, Okay. They, they, they get maybe 10,000 a night, despite how good they are. I empathize with uh, Dick Vitale. Dick Vitale is obviously, you know, one of the big college basketball um, uh, analysts out on ESPN. But he is a diehard Rays fan. And he constantly complains when he goes on Twitter. He discusses, like, you know, the Rays are good. Why is no one there? Uh, it, it, and I, I agree. This is a great team. You have great talent out there. Kevin Kiermeyer. who wouldn't want to see Kevin Kiermeyer go in and make an absolutely phenomenal catch at the wall in a postseason game. That is baseball at its finest when you have an absolutely dynamite defensive center fielder come in and make a tremendous catch to save a run for a team like the Rays. Who wouldn't want to see that? And granted, in the postseason, they do they do better. They fill the crowd. They fill the stadium up. But when you're in points, when you're in the regular season in June, I still want to see that as well. And if you kill them, what matters in the regular season, it's going to make it even more difficult for small market teams to drive attendance in, you know, the dog days of summer when you're in July, August, June, for that matter. You know, once the novelty of the early part of the season wears off, where does that leave you? And that and that concerns me. And I hope it doesn't end up that way. But I think it, I think there will be I think there will be expanded playoffs this year when the uh, when the teams uh, when the sides do eventually come to an agreement. Um, we also have uh, the. Uh, Universal DH, which will be implemented. They've already decided that it's going to be implemented uh, in the 2022 season. And I'm excited for that just because I do think it is time. I think it's time to make that change. I, I think that baseball's offensive, the offensive recognition that baseball needs, you know, having pitchers hit. Granted, it's a novelty, sure. And I do like to see guys like DeGrom or um, or Madison Bumgarner hit home runs. And granted, they're good hitters, but that's a that's a small small percentage of what actual pitchers do at the plate. If you look at a typical pitcher at bat in the National League, it's it's a strikeout or a weak contact out. Maybe you'll get a single occasionally, maybe a double. Once in a while, you'll even see that miracle home run, uh, and and that's awesome. I, I love I love seeing things like that. But let's let's be honest, that doesn't happen that often. And you know, the last pitcher home run we saw was Logan Webb's home run for the Giants in the NLDS last year, and that could granted be that could be the fun. I mean, 
Otani's an exception, granted, but that could be the final pitcher home run we ever see. It's amazing to say that, and because it's been a staple in Major League Baseball over its entire lifespan of over 150 years, we're finally at the point where pitchers will not hit. And now, granted, Otani's a, a two-way player, so he's a pitcher that hits, and he'll play, you know, DH. That's different. But Logan Webb, last pitcher home run. Think about that. That could be a trivia question one day. Um, but I digress. Uh, you know, I wanted to get in a little baseball talk. And uh, for, uh, before we get to our guest here, I do want to discuss a little bit of NCAA bracketology. Because, folks, it is February. It's the end of February. We're getting to that time. We are getting to that magical time of year. And, you know, I, I baseball is my sport. Baseball is my favorite sport. Loved it my entire life. But there is something about March Madness that is just... It, it just catches the it captures the imagination a little bit because, you know, I think the whole aspect of, you know, picking brackets, picking brackets is something that, you know, it's a, it's part of American culture, I would say. I think, you know, when people, you know, on ESPN.com or whatever website you want to use, they get millions and millions of brackets. Uh, people submit, you know, they, they think, you know, that illusion that you can pick a perfect bracket when the odds are 9.2 quintillion to one. People think they can do it, and it just it captures your imagination. Like, what if what if I picked a perfect bracket? And you know, the mind travels to like you know the fame, the recognition, the college basketball prowess that you'd attain, and it just it captures you. You feel the upsets when they happen. That theme music on CBS when the games start. You know, hopefully, you know your alumni makes it, and you maybe go on a run, a magical run. It captures you, and I absolutely love it. It is, I would say, if you want to you know my favorite postseasons, I mean, granted, baseball's postseason is great. So is the NFL's, but March Madness, it's in a different category to me. I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's definitely in a different category just because of the the way that the, the that it's run, you know, one and done. Teams like, you know, UMBC, University of Maryland, Baltimore, beating Virginia a few years ago, a 16-to-1 upset how could you not be excited about that? I mean, no one picks it, sure, but who doesn't want to see a number one seed get knocked off by 20 points in an absolute stunner that has never happened before? Think about that. That was three years ago. In 160 other 16-to-1 matchups, it had never happened, and it finally did. That's what March Madness is about. So I want to get into bracketology a little bit because, you know, we're coming into Selection Sunday is two weeks away, and we, we're at the point where we're going to we, – we, we haven't really discussed college basketball a lot on the show, but we're at the point where we really know what's going to happen here in terms of seeding. I mean, you have, you have your favorites. You have Gonzaga, Arizona, Auburn, Kansas. Those are – right now, those are the top four seeds in each region. And, you know, granted – Look at Gonzaga. Let's look at Gonzaga for a second here because I think everyone in America, I think America is going to look at them as, you know, they're the favorite, I would say, this year. Not just because, you know, they're number one in the country, but because people know who is on Gonzaga because of last year. You know, Timmy, Drew Timmy, Chet Holmgren. I mean, these are notable players. Holmgren was a huge recruit coming into the season. Drew Timmy, a fan favorite in America just because of the look, the way he performs. He's a good shooter. I mean, granted, this is not, you know, the 20, uh, 2021 Gonzaga roster you had was, uh, or excuse me, 2020-2021 Gonzaga roster you had. I mean, it, it's a different, it's a different team. I mean, it's not, we, we don't, it's not, there's no more Jalen Suggs. There's no Corey Kispert anymore. I mean, now you're going into, you know, your Drew Timmies and your Chet Holmgren's and 
granted, right now at this point, they're they're twenty three and two, exactly what you'd expect from a Gonzaga team. You know, no one beats them in their conference. St. Mary's is the only actual threat to them in the uh, in the WCC. And you know, I think when 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 people see you know the uh, the people's bracket, you know who who's picked the most, Gonzaga will definitely be picked the most. And I think they're going to go on a good run. I don't know if they're going to win the whole thing. I think there are so many different intangibles here with this. You know, you have UCLA who went to the Final Four last year after coming in as a playing team as an 11 seed. And, you know, you still have Johnny Juzang running that offense. And granted, they've had less success than people imagine them to. Granted, they were a top five team going into the season. Now they're number 12. I think their big upset over Villanova uh, changed things a little bit. I think that early season win sort of propelled them to that point where people thought that they would be just as good. Then they lost to Gonzaga by 20 and people started asking questions. And of late, I mean, the Pac-12, keep in mind, the Pac-12 have come in and have just been I would say, if not, maybe the SEC. I would say the SEC puts in maybe a little bit more of a, just as much of a threat, or maybe even the Big Ten for that matter. But the Pac-12, an underrated conference last year that had tremendous success. I mean, USC, Oregon, UCLA, Oregon State last year, all tremendous runs that no one expected. Oregon State was a 12, a 12, and they played Loyola Chicago in the Sweet 16, and they won. They went to the Elite Eight as a team that no one gave any chance to. Oregon had that, uh, you know, Oregon had that uh, uh, seven. They were a seven seed. They had that easy win in the first round because of COVID, and you know they ended up playing USC in the uh, in their uh, in their Elite Eight matchup. And UCLA obviously ran into the Final Four. No one expected any of these teams, maybe USC, to go on a run. All four of them did. And I know they don't have the Pac-12 does not have as much representation in the bracket this year. They're only expected to have three teams. But I could easily see, I think people are forgetting about how good that conference was last year. I could easily see all three of them having deep runs this postseason for in the uh, in the tournament. And you know, the SEC has had, you know, they're the top heavy talent. You got Arkansas, Kentucky, uh, Auburn, Alabama. These are football schools, and they've somehow turned into these basketball powerhouses of late. Uh, Auburn, Auburn has been tremendous. You could argue they're the best team in the tournament. I mean, they they're they're twenty four and three. I mean, their only losses this year an absolute thriller in double overtime against UConn early in the season. But since then, I mean, they've had some tough losses to Arkansas and Florida, but they've won every game besides that. And you know, Jabari Smith has really anchored this team. I mean, sixteen point three points a game, shooting over forty three percent from the field. This is an Auburn team that I'm really excited about, and you know. One seeds always make or have of late made the final four every single year. There's always one that makes it. But, you know, teams to look at going in, I'm a little less excited about the Big East this year. You know, we have, you know, Providence has uh, has really slowed of late after a phenomenal start. They've looked very shaky in Big East play and competition. I also think that um, uh, teams like Villanova, even UConn for that matter, they were disappointing last year after Villanova won first round win. UConn with a loss in the first round against Maryland um, didn't really get me excited. So I don't know. I'm not as happy. I'm not as excited about the Big East. I don't know if teams on the outside looking in are going to have any shot in the Big East either. I don't think, you know, teams like, uh, you know, maybe Rutgers, maybe because they can, I don't even think, uh, excuse me, I don't even think Rutgers is in the uh, Big East anymore. I believe they're in the Big Ten. But uh, it's it still, I don't see any team in the Big East looking in. Maybe if they have a good run in the conference tournament, maybe Seton Hall. Uh, I don't even think Syracuse has a good shot. Or, uh, you know, Syracuse is uh, an ACC team now anyway. So, 
definitely going to be interesting to see how that goes. But we have a guest to get to. Miss Cameron Weiler going to be joining us in just a moment. Going to be talking Olympics with us. And personally, you know, when you have interviews like this with someone who has such a wealth of experience in these areas of, you know, whether it's, you know, she's an arbitration lawyer now, works for the International Olympic Committee, um, uh, excuse me, the U.S. Olympic Committee, as well as, uh, you know, serving as a four-time Olympian in the luge circuit in the Winter Olympics, such an interesting conversation just about how she managed all of this, you know, how she got into the sport in the first place. Definitely going to be interesting. So Cameron Myler, stick around coming up next. Welcome back to the show, everybody. And joining me this week, a former U.S. Olympian flag bearer. She is a professor at the NYU School for Professional Studies. Miss Cameron Myler joining us today. I'm very excited about this guest we have today. Cameron, how are you doing today? Hi, Ian. Uh, I'm great. And just one quick comment. Mm -hmm. uh, one is never a former Olympian. Wow. You know, I, I never thought of it that way, but you are absolutely, you are absolutely right. <laughs> it, it is, it, it's, it's something you carry with you. Uh, I'm sure throughout your entire life, I'm sure there are so many different ways that you have had to, you know, apply what you've done in sort of just performance wise, what you've learned. And we're definitely going to get to all of that today, but you know, the Olympics just wrapped up. I, I guess really the first thing I want to talk about with you is wh what are your thoughts on the games? Did you did you enjoy watching it as much as you did in previous years? Just just some general thoughts on it, really. Well, I am always excited to watch the Olympics, whether it's winter or summer. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I don't think Beijing was any exception. Uh, there were you know a bunch of new uh, events on the program this year. Uh, the luge track in particular mm -hmm. seemed really challenging. Uh, and uh, and of course, there's always you know drama and excitement and uh, and surprise at the games along with athletes, you know, having these incredible performances. So, uh, so I, I did, I did watch it. Uh, I did enjoy it. And, uh, I, I, I think like everyone else who is a fan of the Olympics, mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be looking forward to a games where, you know, we can actually all attend, uh, in person again. I, you know, and with some, I, I've noticed, you know, down the line we have Paris and then we have the games coming to the Americas in 2028 back in Los Angeles. I'm sure that will be extremely exciting. And, you know, you've been involved with, you know, the U.S. National Luge team. You have been a, you were, uh, you know, you competed on four different teams. Uh, you uh, were a flag bearer at one point, which I think is so remarkable. You now serve as an <laughs> athlete ambassador as well. I guess, you know, maybe just the first thing we should talk about is what, what was that experience like? I, I got to figure just for our listeners out there that many of them don't really think about the, the training, the whole participatory aspect. Just talk about the experience just being at the Olympic Games. What is that like just in terms of intrinsic details, stuff that you noticed? What, what was that like for you? Well, maybe just a little bit sort of leading up to being on, you know, making an Olympic team and representing your country at the Olympics. I, I had the great fortune to compete, as you said, in, in four different Olympics. Uh, but you know, I started doing luge when I was 11. I made the national team when I was 15. And 
it is uh, being an elite athlete is kind of like a full-time job. Mm-hmm. You are committed to it. You're serious about it. You spend a lot of time sort of perfecting your your craft and and your sport. And uh, there are you know many many hours that every single Olympic athlete spends uh, you know, getting ready to uh, to compete at the games. But mm-hmm. uh, the you know the experience of being at the Olympics, I'll, I'll speak to my first one, which was in Calgary mm-hmm. in 1988. And I remember very distinctly walking into the stadium of the opening ceremonies. And it was really at that moment that I thought, oh my gosh, like <laughs> I'm an Olympian, like I've done it. Uh-huh. This is something I've been working for, mm-hmm. you know, nearly my whole life. And uh, it was this moment of uh, sort of incredulity uh, and uh, sort of recognizing that I belonged to this, you know, greater Olympic uh, family and uh, and always would. So um, so there's, you know, the, that kind of experience. And then, of course, there's the... Uh, competition uh, at the, <laughs> the games, yeah. which is why we are, you know, what we're all preparing uh, to do. And uh, my my best finish was in Albertville in '92, uh, and at the time, I, it was incredibly disappointing because I, I had luge at the Olympics is four runs total, uh, two runs on two consecutive days, and the night before the. Uh, first day of competition uh, for me I uh, I had like the flu and oh, wow. was throwing I was throwing up all night I was in sports medicine like with an IV in my arm I was really sick and I thought oh my god really like I've been preparing how long to uh, compete here and and I had been you know training I'd been really fast in training and and I ended up fifth which I think you know given the circumstances <laughs> probably was a pretty good result yeah. but uh, at the time, I was really disappointed uh, because I, I knew that it had everything uh, gone as I hoped or planned or expected, it maybe would have been different. But, you know, looking back, I had I had like an incredible career. I'm like, so thankful for uh, for all of the opportunities I had to you know, compete at the games and to really sort of, you know, uh, have the Olympic values uh, and uh, um, you know, guide me as as an athlete and since as a as a professional and in my personal life as well. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like a lot of the experiences you you took away so many lessons from them. It seems, and you know, th- you know, fin- finishing fifth. I mean, th- th- I, to me, to be honest with you, I mean, just just being there is just <laughs> is is absolutely remarkable. I mean, it's such a it's such an elite group of people and. Now, you know, as we are now in 2022 now, this is now almost 30, this is 30 years removed. And, you know, when you're watching the Olympic Games and you, you know, you talked about, you talked about your experiences and now 30 years later, do you think, the, do you think athletes are having the same experience now? I mean, there's certainly issues with COVID and stuff. And I know that those hopefully will not be an issue for the next Olympic Games in 2024. But I'm wondering, do you think the Olympic experience is still the same? And if so, do you think that athletes still have that sort of drive and passion to compete at the same high level as they did 30, 20, 40 years ago? Uh, you know, I think in uh, the maybe the and I'll I'll speak to the to the Winter Games thing that okay. uh, Beijing just uh, 
wrapped up. But, you know, so many of the the sports on the Olympic program uh, it, for winter are, you know, we do these because, and we being athletes, uh, we compete in these sports because we love them. There's not necessarily um, for too many people an opportunity to, you know, to make a lot of money. So it, it's really, you know, I, I think athletes still are experiencing the same kinds of you know, challenges, uh, mm-hmm. being my best on the, on the track or on the speed skating oval or the figure skating rink, mm-hmm. you know, being my best physically and, and, and mentally and, uh, and, ex- uh, you know, exceeding expectations perhaps on the, you know, on the, on the world stage. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, I, I don't think any of that really has, has changed. Okay. I think the, the, the athletes who, um, are, you know, committed to their, uh, to their sport and interested in, in going to the games. I, I think they are, um, they have the same kind of experience, of course, like, I mean, some things are very different with the, you know, digital, you know, yes. the digital age and yes. you know, communication and mm-hmm. social and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but at, uh, at heart, I think the experience of competing at the games and participating and knowing that you are one of, you know, very few people who will ever have that experience. Mm-hmm. That is still, that is still the same. Okay. Well, you know, I honestly, when, when you say that, it's, it's good to hear that because, you know, personally, you know, I've watched since, uh, you know, since I was seven years old, the first one I watched was actually in Beijing in 2008. And I remember just <laughs> when it, whether it was hockey or skiing or, um, basketball, even luge for that matter, I was just, I was always hooked. Uh, every, every sport I watched, I always had this sort of attachment or passion for either one particular athlete or the United States team. And, you know, now that we're in the, uh, we're 30 years removed from your time and, I'm wondering because I feel as though the Olympics have somewhat lost their a little bit. They've lost their place a little bit among the sports that really people are driven to watch and are just as passionate about. Because I remember back in 2010, whether it was the gold medal hockey game between Canada and the United States, I remember how big of a deal that was, obviously, up north and even in the United States. And I'm wondering, uh, from your perspective, do you think the Olympics still holds that same place in American society? I think athletes definitely feel that way, but do you think that the viewing public still holds that same attachment? And if it if they don't, what do you think can be done about that to sort of change that perspective in sort of conventional society? So Ian, I think that's a great question and one that the International Olympic Committee is is dealing with and mm-hmm. trying to, you know, ad- address uh, proactively because I, you know, I, I think you're right. Uh, maybe, you know, not as many people are perhaps watching the, uh, the games and, and I'm, I'm going to put aside the, you know, the last two Olympics, uh, which mm-hmm. have been sure. you know, impacted yes. uh, because of COVID, but uh, the, the IOC is really, trying to figure out how do we engage you know younger viewers younger athletes what what sports do they want to participate in uh so that impacts you know what sports are on the olympic program Mm -hmm. and then and then what do people actually want to you know watch as the as the viewing public so Mm -hmm. i i i i agree it's a 
it's a challenge. Uh, I think it's it's one that will be ongoing, and I, it, especially in the in the summer, in you know in in Tokyo, we saw some changes uh, to the Olympic program with mm-hmm. the addition of you know surfing and skateboarding and yeah. sport climbing, uh, which. I think even, you know, 10 years ago, the IOC might not have even, you know, given a second thought to, mm-hmm. but uh, it's a, it's an opportunity to engage, you know, not only viewers, but uh, but athletes who are participating in I those see. sports. I see. And, and when you say that the committee is being more, uh, maybe uh, more lenient in terms of the uh, the sports that they may pick or on the sort of the docket of, you know, you said surfing, you said skateboarding. I mean, those are... When I think of the Olympics, that's not necessarily what I think of, but obviously I think with the younger demographics, it's certainly make there certainly may need to make those changes. And because, you know, you obviously you serve in a professional capacity and the United States Olympic Committee, you served on the USA Luge, many as their vice president on the board of directors, you're in all sorts of these executive roles now. And I'm wondering on the inside, do, do you see those changes being made or are you noticing that these executives, many of the people who you may work with, are they more susceptible to changes now? Or do you think that they may be less so inclined to make those changes because it's been this way for so long? Uh, is there more, are there changes being made? And if so, are you excited about those changes personally? Uh, well, one. Uh, so I'll start with the yes. Uh, definitely excited for change. It's it's necessary for you know for organizations, for sports, for any any kind of professional or other activity. Change is necessary. It's yeah. a good thing. I think we need to uh, embrace it and and figure out what's important. So uh, some of the some of the changes uh, from the IOC have come. Uh, from the uh, the current president of uh, of the IOC, uh, Thomas Bach. So mm-hmm. he's a he's a lawyer. Uh, he was an Olympic medalist in uh, in in fencing and uh, and in this current you know strategic plan for the organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, the there is and it, you referred to as it it as a sort of leniency, but I'm going to let's say more you know flexibility okay. and. Uh, uh, for for cities that are hosting the games, and uh, so now a city that hosts the Olympics has has the chance to decide. Okay, we'd like to add you know these sports to the program, you know, for our Olympic games because we know that that viewers, uh, that people who live in the country, are really excited about these uh, these sports, and mm-hmm. so there is you know there is definitely some more uh, flexibility in the program as a as a a result of that but uh-huh. i i think it needs you know it needs to be systemic it has to come from the the top uh and the the ioc i i think is you know has moved in the in the right direction and uh and and hopefully you know every people will uh, will embrace the change which uh you know i i definitely do i think it's i think it's a positive thing okay well it's i'm glad to hear you say that because i would hope that some of the sports or some of the, the ways that with the way in which the American public consumed the Olympics in the past, I also agree. I feel like that is uh, obtainable again. And so from what you're saying, it seems like the Olympic Committee is moving in this direction, which is certainly positive and good to hear. But I want to shift gears a little bit to a little more about your personal, just your professional development, just the way, because 
uh, I'm sure many of our viewers may not realize this, but you're you're very well accomplished just in so many different areas. It, it's just remarkable. <laughs> just as an athlete, you're you're a lawyer. You serve uh, on a variety of different committees. And I, I, this is maybe sound like a bit of a weird question, but do do you ever look back on just your time and all the things you've accomplished? And do you really feel that sense of accomplishment and pride and just the way you you know it, whether it's just uh, serving as in uh, in some arbitration cases, hearing arbitration cases, whether it's just being an athlete or serving in so many different charitable aspects? Do you ever look back and just feel accomplished about what you've done, or is there is there really no time to stop and think about these things? Because when people when people look about when people look at you know bios and you know Wikipedia articles or whatever, they sort of see all these different accomplishments and it's a great list, but I want to know just from a personal standpoint, does this really, do you feel proud of what you've accomplished? So in a single, in a single word, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, and it's, you know, I think it's something that's always evolving. Uh, and I, I am really grateful to have had the opportunity to participate in Olympic sport in a, you know, in a whole variety of ways. First as an athlete, uh, on the board of directors of the U.S. Olympic and Par now Paralympic Committee mm -hmm. um, at USA Luge, I was uh, on the uh, on the IOC um, one of the uh, groups that uh, gave input on the new strategic plan, mm -hmm. uh, and and now as as an arbitrator. Uh, and, and you didn't mention, but I'm going to throw it in there <laughs> that, <laughs> that, uh, uh, for the, uh, for the recent, uh, games in Beijing, mm -hmm. I was one of the seven, uh, Olympian artists in residence. That's right. So, yes. uh, so, so for, for me, it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's something that, uh, I, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm grateful for all the time. Everything that I've experienced is, is part of who I am now. And, uh, and that's, uh, you know, evolving and, and changing in a, in a positive way, I would say. Okay. And, and uh, I'm, well, first off, you know, if I, if I was in your position, I, I would be, I, I would be just ecstatic. <laughs> I would be ecstatic just to know that I've been able to accomplish all these things and sort of be able to serve in so many, so many different, uh, different, uh, standpoints, perspectives. Uh, you know, you've, there are so many different things you've worked on and there's so, in such a wide range of different categories, which I think is so interesting. And as we wrap up here, I, I want to turn a little bit towards, uh, sort of what you see in terms of the future of the Olympic movement. You know, it, we are now uh, 100, we're, I think the first Olympic was in 1896, and we are now 125 years plus out of that. And, you know, now that we move into the middle of the 21st, well, somewhat quarter middle of the 21st century, and because you serve in a lot of these high capacities, I'm wondering, what is one specific thing that you're excited about going forward in terms of either maybe, well, I know you're more suited towards the Winter Olympics, so maybe in the Winter Olympic aspect or the Olympic movement in general, what is one thing that really stands out to you as something that the American public can look forward to in terms of how the Olympics or the Olympic movement itself will be perceived going forward? Something that really struck it, uh, that stands out to you. Well, I guess one thing is that I am really excited that Los Angeles will be hoping, uh, hosting the Olympics in uh, in 2028. Uh, the uh, the you know, LA had has had the games two times before. The last in 1984, and in 1984, that was really a, a pivotal point for the Olympic movement, uh, in in which like the Olympics 
made money and were profitable and were able then to benefit a lot of other you know organ sport organizations and uh, and and athletes so i'm i'm really excited the uh the games are coming back to the u.s mm-hmm. but um but i maybe more broadly um that the olympic movement continues to be uh and and i absolutely am an advocate for you know sport being something that connects us all it's a it's a it's a universal language uh it is something you know it doesn't matter what color you are mm-hmm. where you came from mm-hmm. what your gender is uh it, it's you know sport is something that can uh that can create connections uh in this uh in this you know world where there are many uh uh divisions yes. and rifts uh, at uh, at this point so mm-hmm. i i really believe that uh, the olympic movement can and will uh increasingly more um serve as uh as a means to uh to connect to you know to promote and you know inclusiveness and uh, and belonging and diversity so mm-hmm. uh, so that's that's what i'm excited for I, and and who could and who could blame you? To be honest with you, because I, I think you know, in terms of just America, I mean, the last time we saw the games just in America was uh, in the winter. I believe we had Atlanta, we had Salt Lake City as well, and and just in in terms of the way that I think I think you're absolutely right. I think that having it here, I think the way that sports are con- consumed here, it's so vital because you know the way that Americans consume sports is unlike I would say most other, if not all, other countries <laughs> in the world. And having them here, I think, will I've noticed in t- the way that the Olympic movement has gone. At any time that it is in the Americas, there's a moment or something that has changed the way that the Olympics operate or there's a large moment that people can rally around or get excited about. So I couldn't agree with you more, and I'm very excited to hear all the positive things you're saying about the Olympic movement. And, you know, Cameron, we really thank you for your time with us today. And uh, last thing before I let you go, 2028 Winter Oli- uh, Summer Olympics in Los Angeles – would you want to go to that as a fan? Would that be something that you would be? Thr- Do you think that Americans are thr- would be thrilled to see the Olympics in person? Because I'll be honest, there are probably a whole new generation that hasn't seen it in person before. Well, I think all sorts of people haven't seen the Olympics in person before. Oh, yeah, Me, uh, yeah. yes, I definitely want to be there in LA. And you know, I I think you're right, Ian, that uh, that Americans are you know voracious uh, consumers yes. of uh, of sport mm-hmm. and uh, and to you know to have the experience of the Olympics in person. Uh, is a very different thing, and mm-hmm. I the the first Olympics I experienced w- was in 1980 uh, with my parents volunteered at the luge track. Mm-hmm. I was there with them every day, and it is like this magic kind of uh, environment mm-hmm. and occasion. And uh, and yes, I hope uh, I hope as many people as possible will uh, will go and see you know see it in person and feel that magic. And with all those new and with all those new venues out there, I'm sure that there will be lots of people that want to experience that. And Cameron, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so glad you were able to come in and discuss all these things that I think at the perfect time, right at the day after the closing ceremonies, I'm so glad we got to discuss these things. Thanks, Ian.